0: Let's look at uh, the letter to the Romans, chapter 7, and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was, except through the law. Well, here's a word that we don't very often find these days. We don't meet it. We don't hear it. It's not on the BBC. We didn't hear it on the lips of any politician in the recent campaigns for the general election. I don't hear it coming from Washington, D.C. Let me say something about the disappearance of sin. 25 years ago, an American called Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And in that book, he said, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared the word, but also, with that word, the notion of sin. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? That's on page 14 of that interesting book. His book is documenting the disappearance of sin from American society. He basically argues that in place of the historic concept of sin, we now speak of such things as as crime and symptoms of human behavior. Whenever you look at sin as crime or human symptoms, you're missing the essence of right and wrong behavior in the men and women that you live with and suffer from week by week. Whenever you take sin and turn it into crime, then you've taken God out of the picture. Because sin is committed between a person and God. Crime is uh, wrongdoing between men. So, if you call bad behavior a crime, you really defined it downwards. Or if you take sin and you you say, ah, well, it's the symptoms of it, then... um, uh, heredity and uh, environment, lack of education poverty and those are the things that, that cause these uh, bad behaviors, then you are explaining away, you are rationalizing human conduct by what men do but sin is a, a God focused word so Ray Pritchard then, um, he went to the local library and he did a computer search with InforTrack. Tens of thousands of articles. He said he'd keep it to the last ten years. Every uh, magazine then is located there and so he, he printed in sin and they did a word search quickly like computers do. And uh, he found a few references to sin, but just a tiny number. And then the next thing he did was to uh, bring out uh, um, the speeches of American presidents from Lincoln. And he found in uh, one of Lincoln's presidential addresses in 1863, he used the word sin. And then the only one after that was Eisenhower um, at the inauguration of the presidential day of prayer. Kennedy didn't use that word that when he went to the presidential day of prayer, and uh, Johnson didn't, Nixon, Carter didn't, Ford didn't, Reagan didn't, Clinton, Bush, Obama hasn't. So they just, though it was a religious occasion and they were to say a few words at the dinner before a few people were called upon to pray, as far as sin was concerned. And our British politicians and every single party, they are characterized by the same omission. It's a non-politically correct word to use. It may not be mentioned. My father, who was born 110 years ago, my father couldn't say the word homosexual. Now politicians and educationalists and doctors today can't say the word sin. And that difference in speech reveals a different difference in heart attitude to ourselves and to our creator. We're living in a society which has lost the concept of sin. But it hasn't lost the practice of sin. In Britain, we are ignoring the concept of sin, but the practice of sin, it continues. It's very healthy, unabated. And what happens in a society, what happens in a civilization when sin is practiced but not admitted? What happens when you sin but you don't admit that is what you are doing? Well, I tell you what happens, that nation, that society, that culture begins to deteriorate because there's dishonesty at the core and that is what is happening then in Western world today but in the Bible you know that sin is all important when Paul refers to sin then there's a grand assumption underlying it and that assumption is that there is law the creator of the world has revealed his will to his creation And his will is found in his law. When it is defied and broken, there is real guilt and real condemnation and real punishment. So, the existence of law in the universe, the revealed will of God, creates the foundation for law breaking and guilt and law keeping and righteousness and courts. And judges, a divine assize, a divine mercy seat, justification, and condemnation. All these great realities, they rest on this one assumption, there is law. So when Paul proclaims that there are lawbreakers, and there is guilt, and there is appointed a day of judgment... And there is a judge. And there is a guilt-bearing substitute. There is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there is justification by faith alone, apart from law-keeping. When Paul proclaims that, as part of his gospel, his grand assumption behind it all is that there is law. No law. No law-breaking. No law-breaking. No guilt. No guilt. No court. No court. No judge. No judge. No justification. And no need for the incarnation of God. No need for crucifixion. The whole reality and the whole glory of redemption hangs on the existence and the excellence of the law that the creator of the universe has given to the world. Let me go on, secondly then, and deal with this, that um, if all else fails, read the instructions. You've heard that, that phrase, haven't you, when... You've been with somebody and uh, they're confused and uh, you give them a little tip of what they ought to do. It's good advice. We need it. Um, We've bought a cupboard from Ikea and we think it's pretty straightforward putting together. There's a, a manual there in eight languages. The first is generally English but you can see just what they're getting at and you try and you fail miserably. And The reason was you thought you could do the job without looking at the instructions. Sometimes we need a word about the instructions because we failed in something much more important than putting an IKEA cupboard together. Some people have relationships that are in deep trouble because they thought their feelings were strong enough bear any strain whatsoever and that their feelings could carry them through a long relationship without consulting the instructions. Others have failed in dealing with an unwanted pregnancy or with a relative suffering with dementia or dealing with debt or with our response to drugs that are offered to us. So it's often said, if all else fails, read the instructions. And when it's said, it's generally said with a half smile and with a, a knowing wink. We all know that it's not smart to do something without getting help from the instructions of how to do it. If we begin a project before we consult them, then the wreckage of failure can often be around us. But human nature, being what it is, we all have a tendency to plunge into a project without reading the instructions. It's a complex piece of machinery. And we haven't looked at the accompanying booklet, because we can do it. It can be done. And then we find out we're in trouble, and we don't have the humility to say, Ah, oh, I was silly. It was a silly thing to not sit down first and receive the instructions of what to do. We should have read what the designer and the maker had to say about what we were going to do. It's straightforward, isn't it? We have problems. We have problems with our personalities. How many people are unhappy and increasingly dependent on drugs? Haven't they arrived at a point then when they can say all else has failed? Shouldn't you go and read the instructions? Now you might agree that this is a good idea but where in the world do you say will we find the instructions that we need? It's one thing to look at the Kindle that your wife has bought And seek to press the buttons and get it to work without first looking at the instructions. You have to go back to them at the end. Or you failed in cooking something and it's not at all good and you go to the cookery book and you turn to the pages on that particular meal and you discover what they say. Where do you go for the great problems? Understanding ourselves. Understanding the world in which we live. Morality. Ethics. What is the good life? Who is my neighbor? What is the purpose of our existence on this planet in this brief lifetime? How can I know God? How can I get right with him? where are the instructions for mankind? Well, the Bible, you see, very vividly and unforgettably tells us that the creator of the universe, the one who made us in his image, is a personal God. He's a speaking God. He's a loving God. He's an omnipotent God. And he's given us commandments. He's given us instructions telling us how we're to live. We read together This incident tonight in Exodus 20, when God summoned then Moses to come to Mount Sinai and meet with him, and he gave him two tablets of stone, two copies of the Ten Commandments. One, the suzerain, the Lord gave. It was his copy, and the other was the copy for the people. And they were to be kept in a special place. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols and fall before them and worship them. Don't take my name vainly. Remember, one day a week, you you don't live every day of your life for your business and your work and your pleasures. But one day a week, you say, I'm just thinking of God today. Honor your father and your mother. Don't do any violence. Keep clear of sexual sin. You don't lie. Honesty, truthfulness, you don't steal what is your neighbor's property and you don't covet. You you understood what I said, I communicated to you these things, didn't I? They, they weren't complex, they weren't long words um, 174 words in the original, what or is it, 32,000 words in the uh, in the European Union, about the importation of cauliflowers. Just that hundred odd words. And God gives them to his creatures who live in his world. And they're put in a box, an ark and it's kept when they were going through the wilderness in the center of, of the tribes. It was there, but And then when they moved to their capital city at the heart of it, there was a great temple and it was kept there in the holy place. You think for a moment how different our town would be if people all respected and obeyed those commandments. Let me meditate on that just for a second with you. The benefits that we would have if people... Did what the law of God told us to do you could walk home in the dark at at any time you wouldn't be afraid of footsteps behind you or a figure in a doorway waiting as you were getting near you wouldn't need to lock your doors there'd be far fewer police and far fewer solicitors and court cases and traffic wardens There'd be no bullies in school. There'd be no cheating in exams. There'd be no drug taking. There'd be no football scandals. There'd be better health because there'd be less obesity and less drunkenness and less lung cancer, less sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no members of parliament fiddling their expenses. No banks ripping off their customers. No vandalism, no cruelty to animals, no graffiti. Husbands and wives would keep their marriage vows. The unborn child would be safe from harm in his mother's womb. Elderly people wouldn't be afraid of euthanasia. There'd be no drunkenness, and so on and so on. It would be an immeasurably happier town if people kept the law of God. Old Testament Christians knew and loved the law of God. They looked at what the Babylonians and the Amalekites and the Midianites and the Egyptians did in their wretched civilizations and they had the law of God and they said, Oh, how love I thy law. I meditate on it all day long. That's what they said. The psalmist in Psalm 1 describes a blessed man and that blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. Does Paul care what you do with the instructions that God has given to you, how to live? Well, it mattered tremendously to him what people thought of God's law, what you do with the law. It really mattered. It matters to us, too. It matters to this congregation. Third thing I want to say to you is that the law is not sin. Let's ask Paul, what do you think about the law, Paul? Is it sin? And he answers immediately, verse 7, God forbid, may it never be, he says. No, the law itself isn't sin. There's uh, the negative answer. If you don't read the Achaea, instruction book before you build the cupboard you'd be a fool if you blamed the book you failed it you failed to build it properly because you said I can do it, I don't need the book, I don't need the instructions and so then you found you had 48 screws and 19 brackets and no place to put them and the cupboard was wobbly you didn't say, What a bad instruction manual! Because you hadn't looked at the instruction manual. The presence of the law in the world is, is not sinful. You can sing the anthem of the 1960s until you're hoarse horse, all you need is love. But law is love's eyes. And without law, Love is blind. Then even more powerfully in verse 12, Paul states very positively his view of the law of God. And remember that this man who is writing these things was uh, confronted and authorized by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be his spokesman. And this is what he says about God's great instruction book, which he's given to you. To the people in in the world. Which the Gideons give out. and They put in. Their schools. And in the. Halls of residence. So then he says. Verse 12. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And righteous. And good. So you see what he's saying. Not only is it not sin. But neither is it not only holy and not only righteous. It's good. The law is good, he says. There is one other place in the the letter to the Romans where uh, these adjectives are are found, righteous and good. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 7, you know, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. This means that a man simply considered for his righteousness a man as straight as a rifle (laughs) a man of justice a man of integrity he may be admired enough for some people to die for him but a good man a man considered That his chief characteristics are his kindness, his gentleness, his truthfulness, his love. Not just his righteousness. A man who endears himself to people who know him. They would give their lives for him. Justice, or righteousness, seems to focus on what is legal and right to do. Goodness seems to focus on what is helpful, what is caring. And they're not in conflict, but they are two ways of seeing and acting, and each is appropriate, and we need them both. So when Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good, He means that the law is not only a righteous standard of what is right and just. It's not just um, like my wooden meter ruler, which tells me this is a meter in length. It's the standard. And that's helpful. And it's necessary. But the law expresses care as well as straightness and righteousness. It protects the fate of dumb animals, of unborn children, of frail elderly people, of old couples in their home and unable to protect themselves if a violent burglar enters, women walking home at night a solitary policeman facing a crowd of rioting teenagers who've been drinking and taking drugs and are holding bottles in their hands. Those people under threat are so glad that there's a law, a good law, a righteous law, that puts a shield between them and the riotous, lawless men and women. Fourthly, let me say something of the value of the law. How does he stand up for the law? He says, verse 7, Indeed, I would not have known what law was, what sin was, except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Well, now, you can just um, separate two strands that are in this verse, and they both are saying very helpful things. There is first uh, the broad premise, the broad principle, you've got to know sin. I'm saying you've got to know wrong from right. You've got to know the sins that so easily beset you. That's one strand, and we look at that. And, And then there's this particular commandment that he refers to, which is the 10th commandment uh, you shall not covet and that's an important commandment too which we can neglect so let's look at those two things so we're dealing with the value of the law firstly we need to know what sin is it's important it's more than um, ecological abuse which children are taught now it's a, you know they're taught in schools to look after the, uh, the world in which we live. And uh, racism, that's another uh, sin that is an awful sin, and people are very conscious of that. Paul wants people to know a broader picture of what sin is. He says it's holy, just and good. So it can't be sin. And he says, you know, because by it I've learned an invaluable lesson. Oh, I'm so good. So glad about that. Um, I learned what sin is. You, you've gone to a conference and people have said to you, uh, how was it? The Christian conference you went to and you've said, oh, it, it was really very good. Uh, I learned a lot in it. What did you learn, they say. And then it's tough. You've got to scratch your head because you felt you had learned. And then you say things and they are little words. They seem to fall from your lips because they're so obvious. You know, I learned of the faithfulness of God. Or I learned of the marvel of his grace. Or so on. Paul says, "I I learned what was right and wrong. because of the law of God it was an excellent teacher it got through my thick skull and it instructed me of how I was to live imagine if I'd never learned what sin was what a mess I would have made of relationships and my finance and my time how good and right and helpful and important it is for us to know our sin you know People say, if ignorance is bliss, it's folly to be wise. Well, that's a lot of rubbish, isn't it? Knowledge of sin is really the first step in grace. The first step towards eternal bliss. You say, well, I don't want to know what sin is. I didn't come to church tonight to know what sin is. Who cares if I know my sin? Who cares? Well, Jesus Christ, who could be your Savior. The one you're going to receive your eternal destiny from. He cares. Your neighbors, your family, your colleagues care. I care that you know what sin really is. A lot of people won't be hurting so bad if you learn what sin is. You protest everyone knows what sin is. Well, no, they don't know. The prodigal son who uh, took the all he could from his poor father and went out and splurged it all on wine, women and song he didn't know what sin was King David playing the part of a peeping tom on the roof of his palace and spying on Bathsheba he didn't know what sin was the drunkard spending so much that his family are impoverished and his ho- oh, own health is being ruined. He doesn't know what sin is. Do the ISIS murderers know what sin is? Does the modernist preacher know what sin is? The drug addict, the gambler, the worshipper who refuses to pay attention to the Word of God. Don't you see that one great problem in, in the world is mankind's ignorance? of sin they don't know that unbelief is a sin they don't know that failure to love your neighbor as yourself is a great sin there's a great pain that comes to the soul and to marriage and the family and the church and the world from that not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. is eternal loss. That comes from refusing. To lose our pride. And say. I'm a sinner. If you are to know any hope. Or any expectation of forgiveness. And mercy from God. And a welcome from God. You must know that there's sin to confess to him. You've got to know your sin. Read uh, the Ten Commandments as Jesus expounds them in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5. As he speaks about the inwardness of sin. It doesn't register on your face in in a frown or on anger. But if it's tolerated... In your heart. Then it's sin. I've just made then one point from verse 7 so far that it's important to know your sin. That's Paul's first defense. He says the law isn't sin. On the contrary, the law helps my understanding. It helps me to know what's right and wrong. And this knowing is a holy thing. This Knowing my sin and myself is is a great thing. It's a precious thing. It's a caring, it's a loving thing. It sends me to the Savior. It shows me I need to be saved. And that God has provided a a Savior identically suitable for me and for every sinner who come to him. One, One great Savior from all our manifold sins. Come to me, he says, I'm meek and lowly of heart and You'll find rest for your souls if you come to me. I see my sin, then I see my Savior. And that's the way of salvation, knowing my sin. And then the other point then, the second thing in his defense of the law, is that we need to know a specific sin. And he chooses one for us. It's the last commandment. It's the sin of covetousness. Paul was a Pharisee. He wasn't just a common or garden Pharisee. He wasn't just an ordinary card-carrying Pharisee. He was, he tells us, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. If there were particular characteristics of a Pharisee, a, a zeal for the law of God, a tithing of your, your herbs in your garden, of the mint, and so on. Of... Uh, not walking more than a hundred paces on the Sabbath day, praying on street corners. Paul outdid all the other Pharisees. He was number one Pharisee. He didn't give a tenth of the herbs, he gave a fifth of the herbs. He wouldn't take 50 paces on a Sabbath. And when he prayed on a street corner, he stopped the donkeys for an hour with his praying. He considered himself blameless in keeping the law of God. He came to the first commandment, no other gods, no problem. I've nailed that one. No idols, don't have any idols. Don't take God's name in vain, don't ever do that. Keep the Sabbath, Jews love to keep the Sabbath, double check that one. Honor your father and mother always did that. Don't murder, wouldn't think of it. Don't commit adultery, no way. Don't steal, I'm okay there. Don't bear false witness. Check. I always tell the truth. And then he came to number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Boom. Direct hit. Clean bolt. Middle stump. Knocked clean out of the ground. Walk back to the pavilion. Dismissed from the team of law keepers. He's a law breaker. You thought you'd kept all of the commandments because you'd kept them outwardly. And then God bowled the tenth commandment at you and you were caught and bowled by the Lord because by its very nature the tenth commandment is different. It probes, it searches you, it makes you look inwardly and it says, is there a covetous spirit that you have? In your heart. You can claim truly, well, I haven't shot anyone. I haven't committed murder. I haven't actually jumped into bed with anyone. So I haven't committed adultery. And you can rationalize those things. But you can't rationalize the Tenth Commandment. It's talking about your your heart it's talking about your affections, your feelings. It's, it's talking about your imagination. It's talking about your intellect. And when Paul read, thou shalt not covet, he realized, I covered all the time. I want stuff I know I shouldn't have I'm greedy for things I see things that another Pharisee has and I wish I could have it I see a lovely vineyard I want it I see a herd of fine fat sheep I, I want them I'm restless, I'm dissatisfied I see a beautiful woman I covet her I'm not a contented man and that's the way coveting works coveting simply means uncontrolled desire either wanting something you shouldn't have or wanting more than you have or wanting what rightfully belongs to somebody else and what Paul says is the law catches us it does you can't escape what the law says. It forces us to look not just on the outward, but it means that we we go inward, in and in and in and in. And there's a ravenous monster there. It's deceitful and it's desperately wicked and you can hardly know what it is. Sin is something inward. And what is true for the 10th commandment is true for all the other commandments too. And that's what Jesus wonderfully does in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The Bible says, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. It's not the physical act then. It includes what goes on in your mind. And he says, if you hate your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. You haven't got to shoot someone to break that commandment. Just, you can murder them in your hearts. You can hate them. You can hate their reputation. You can murder them with your lips and with your thoughts. The law of God, it does me a great favor. It becomes my school teacher. And the first lesson it teaches me is, what is sin? You are a sinner. It says. If you understand the law of God. You understand. that that You can never sing. How great I am. Because you ain't much. You're not so great. The The law reveals to you. The fact and reality. Of sin in your own heart. Sin. The Catechism tells us sin is the transgression of the law of God. But then it says more than that. It's want of conformity unto the law of God. Anything that comes less than the requirements of the law. One of our hymns, you know, we love to sing it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The wandering is our sinning, isn't it? We, we have wandering eyes. We have what the eagles uh, wrote and sung. Uh, we have lying eyes. Another hymn says, take away our love of sinning. Alpha and Omega be. That's what we want the Lord to be. That's what a Christian does. We we want to gather our lives uh, uh, and put everything under the Lordship of Christ. Everything. He's protecting us and he's keeping us from temptation and sin and everything out of his control. You see? If you don't believe me, well, you haven't come to understand the law yet. When the law of God is rightly understood, then it forces you to face up to the fact of the reality of of our condition. We're living in a society where um, a lot of people are Uh, Troubled by drivenness. Let me use that word then. They're self-driven. In their business. In their investments. In their studies. There are others who are driven by their parents. They're conscious that their parents have great expectations of them. That they excel. That they excel in school. That they excel At university, they excel in music, they excel in work, they excel in marriage. And these people often feel that they can't match up to their parents' expectations of them. And this has resulted in them having an instinctive revolt against such pressures, against any authority over them. And with authority, they're against rules And they're against commandments and laws. They are a bane to them. They long to be free spirits. And they believe that true freedom is freedom from all those kinds of restraints and prohibitions and laws. That's why they don't want to go to the Christian Union and, and, and be told by the Christian Union how they should live. And what God expects from them. And they say, well, if I have any children, my children will be free. I just let them, let them make choices themselves, and if they hurt themselves, it will all be part of a learning curve. That's what they say. They think that real life is freedom from laws, freedom from rules, freedom from commandments. And when they think like that, they show just how far from Christianity They've fallen. They've grossly misunderstood what the Christian message is and what the purpose of God's grace is in our lives when he saves us and changes us. And that's why their first need is to understand then the role of the law in the Christian life. The Apostle John is called the Apostle of Love and some people want to set him up against Paul and Paul with his justification, and Paul with his righteousness, and John with his love. How, how does John speak about this, these commandments, this law? In uh, his first letter, and in the fifth chapter, and the opening verses of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How can you tell a born-again person? Well, you can tell a born again person, not because uh, um, of miracles that he does or fantasies that he speaks about, but he believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he's God's Son and our Savior. God has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, and we believe that. And, uh, that's the mark. That's the proof that God has done a work. He's really changed our hearts. He's given us a birth from above. So he's told us what we need to know about our, our condition, that we're sinners, and that he has made a provision in sending the Lamb of God into the world to, to make atonement for us. And uh, um, people who believe that, God has done a great thing in their lives. God has given them a birth from heaven. And then John goes on. You see, that's only his introduction. Everyone who loves the Father, he says, loves his child as well. So, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you love, you love God the Father. You love the God of Sinai who gave the law. You love the God of the Old Testament. You love the Creator, the God who provides his glory and his provision for us. And God loves those who are born again. But then, John doesn't stop there. This is what he says, and that's what I built up to. He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God. To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. You know what John is saying. The evidence that you are in fact a child of God. That you were born again. Is that you trust in Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, I do that. I don't trust in myself. All my hopes of eternal life is... uh, God's son and how he lived and how he died and the beauty of his life, the power of his intercession at God's right hand. I just look to him. I'll never get to heaven without him. How could I be saved without him? He is my all and in all. And then you love God, because he sent his son into the world and you love your brothers and sisters, the, the the family that you've been brought into, the the children of God, and then you show your love for God by keeping His commandments. Jesus said the same thing: If you love Me, you keep My commandments. And you don't say, "Well, I love some of the commandments very much. Oh, I can just see their wisdom, but..." I I can't say I love all the commandments. No, you, you love them all. If you're born of God and Jesus Christ is the Savior and you trust in Him, then you love His commandments. And you don't want to grieve Him by anything you do about them. It's huge the law of God and our response and its usefulness for us in telling us how we should live as a mark of the grace of God that, that we've had and that we need to understand the functions of the commandments in the Christian life that they are proof that God has saved us if you're an old drunkard and you visit websites and you cheat and you lie and you say well I'm a Christian because I was baptized by you in this church doesn't mean a thing to me if you love me keep my commandments Jesus says if you love me do you love the Lord The law is important then, he says, because it tells us what sin is. It tells us the difference between right and wrong. It tells us what a life pleasing to God is. It tells us how we change the difference that the Word of God makes in our lives. That he gives us inward energy and motivation and desire to keep his commandments they're not grievous he says it's not a burden for us we've been freed from such guilt and shame by the grace of keeping his commandments Lord bless your word to us tonight then and uh, help us to say with the psalmist oh how love I thy law it's my meditation all the day Lord we are prone to wander and leave thee oh there is such sadness in our hearts the times when we neglected your commandments and wanted to do things our way and the sadness and the shame and the pain it brought into our lives and we are so sorry for this we pray that we may be helped and kept and we pray that the Lord might be the schoolteacher for this congregation to bring us all to Jesus Christ as our Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen.